In the span of a life, the average person is likely to interact with thousands of people, but will remember fewer than 150 of those encounters. And out of that number, only a handful of those people impact a life in such a way that perspectives, ideologies, and the path forward are forever changed. I'm J.R. Jameson. And I'm Kelsey Timmerman. Today on The Facing Project, we'll explore faith, identity, and life-changing chance encounters. I've always been fascinated by chance encounters that alter the trajectory of one's life. And let me make one thing clear. I don't necessarily believe in this whole predestiny that our lives are determined before we're born thing. What I mean about altering trajectory is this notion that as people, we are hardwired to organize, to want to know and plan for what will happen next in our lives. But we're also hardwired for human connection. And it's this need for human interaction that can cause our best laid plans to go awry in either a good, bad, or ugly direction. So life is not always a straight line. I think that's why I love the movie Sliding Doors. And for our listeners, let me just say, those who don't know this movie... Like me. Or, yes, <laughs> like you. Um, or those who weren't alive when it was released in 1998, it's the one with Gwyneth Paltrow that follows two storylines. The paths the central character's life could take, depending on whether or not she catches a train... And if you haven't seen it and plan to see it, just plug your ears for about 30 seconds I'm not because my ears. I'm about to release a spoiler. And you shouldn't because you need to know what the movie is about because I am going to make you watch it. Um, so in one scenario, she arrives home early and discovers that her husband's having an affair. But in the other, she misses the train and doesn't arrive home early. So, of course, she doesn't learn about her husband's affair. Each scenario alters the way her life moves forward and the people she encounters. JR, I think what you're describing is the energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us and penetrates us. It binds the galaxy together. You know, the force. I don't know what you're talking about. Maybe this will help. Difficult to see. Always in motion is the future. Your path you must decide. Does that help? No. Okay, well that was Yoda. Okay. In case you were wondering. Well, I am slightly familiar with that name. Okay. But I am not a huge Star Wars fan. I think we I have know, I'm sorry. much different tastes yeah. in movies. Yeah, yeah, um, So yes, there are moments where we step onto a new path, but all of our paths begin somewhere, impacting the way we experience and process the world. And that beginning is not really in our control. For instance, my kids are destined to be Star Wars nerds. And in the case of today's story, see, I was getting back there. Yeah. Have faith, young Padawan. I, okay, okay, okay. In the case of today's story, a young chaplain from a conservative anti-LGBTQ background gives last rites to a dying woman whose wife sits at her bedside. This chance encounter changes the entire trajectory of his life. The story is from our hometown and was featured in Facing LGBTQ Plus Pride. Later in the show, we'll be joined by the storyteller, who sits down with us to share where he is now. 20 Minutes Changed My Life. Will Grinstead's story is told by Tom Steiner, performed by Jay Mormon. It is amazing to me how a chance encounter with another person can test your faith and give voice to your mission in life. In 2012, I had just started my hospital clinicals, Clinicals are like student teaching for chaplains. One afternoon, I got called up to the ICU. The woman was likely to die soon. Walking into the room, 
I remember thinking, oh my God, what do I say? I wish the staff chaplain wasn't at lunch. In the room, there was another woman who the nurses introduced to me as the patient's friend. The friend told me that the patient was a believer and would want a prayer. I then asked how she was related to the patient. She hung her head and said, I'm her friend. We've known each other for a long time, and she is very special to me. Then she paused and said, Actually, we're partners, and I know you don't believe in that. I was stunned. What she said broke my heart. She felt she was not going to be accepted by me, the person who was there to help her. I knew immediately I could not be part of a ministry that was excluding some people. Why might the woman be hesitant to tell Will that the patient is her partner? Well, the LGBTQ community has plenty of reasons to be skeptical of Christianity and religion in general. Historically, religion has treated them harshly. There are groups that are more supportive of the LGBTQ community, including Reformed Judaism and the Episcopalian Church. And there are others that are having conversations about how and if to be accepting and affirming. Even though marriage equality has been legal in every U.S. state since 2015, the debate goes on in churches. The Methodist Church is divided. 54% support marriage equality. But some Christian denominations have been anything but accepting and affirming. Prominent pastor Pat Robertson of 700 Club fame said, Many of those people involved in Adolf Hitler were Satanists. Many were homosexuals. The two things seemed to go together. Billy Graham, pastor to presidents, speaking to a crowd of 44,000 people in Ohio in 1993, said, Is AIDS a judgment of God? I could not be sure, but I think so. In 2017, leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention joined other evangelical leaders in a statement denouncing LGBTQ people and their identities as inconsistent with God's holy purposes in creation and redemption. The Project Will story comes from, I remember being at the event. It was not a good night for religion. 90% of the stories involved religion as a source of hate, family shunning, and violence. As a straight Catholic altar boy growing up in a small town without gay people, at least that's how our community acted, I had no idea the harm religion has done. Religion might save some people, but it has led to the deaths of others. Individuals who are religious often have a reduced risk of suicide, but a study of 21,000 U.S. college students found that for some young lesbian, gay, and questioning adults, the opposite is true. Lesbian and gays who reported that religion was important to them were 38% more likely to have had recent suicidal thoughts. Lesbians on their own were 52% more likely to have suicidal thoughts. Those who said religion was important to them and who were questioning their sexuality were nearly three times as likely to have had a recent suicide attempt than those who were not religious. When who you are is counter to what you are taught to believe, counter to your faith, families often go to extreme measures, such as conversion therapy. This therapy, based on the idea that gayness can be cured, has been discredited as harmful and ineffective by every prominent health and psychological association. Sometimes conversion therapy involves strapping a person to a table, forcing them to watch gay couples hugging, kissing, and even having sex so that they relate these acts as abominations or whatever 
and the individuals are subjected to pain, heat, cold, and sometimes electrical shock. And it's legal in 41 states. 41 states. 700,000 Americans have been subjected to some type of conversion therapy. And often families simply reject LGBTQ individuals. Nearly 2 million teens are thrown into the streets each year by their own families. LGBTQ teens who come from families who reject them or feel that they can be changed are eight times more likely to commit suicide than their straight counterparts. So, back to the hospital room Will walked into where the woman sat next to her dying partner. We have no idea what her experiences with religion had been in the past, but for the LGBTQ community, often keeping religion at arm's length, well, that's a survival mechanism. We prayed for her partner as the vent was removed. Her partner died within minutes. I told her, I can see how much you love her and that your heart is broken for her. She started crying. I could see the familiar anguish of a love melting into loss. I left the room, hoping she felt that she now had a safe place to grieve. That was a turning point for me. I grew up in a very fundamentalist Baptist church with very conservative political and social ideals. The pastor is in charge, no questions asked. As a Southern Baptist, I was taught that LGBT people are flawed, confused, or mentally ill in some way. However, I always felt that message was not mine. The Southern Baptists now say, I don't fit within the Baptist criteria. I just want to add that I so feel this. I was raised Baptist, and as a gay man, around the time I started recognizing who I was, around 14, 15 years old, the other teens at church started to notice too, and I was teased and bullied. Our pastor, or a Southern Baptist call them, preachers, was definitely a fire and brimstone kind of guy. It felt like during that time that more and more of his sermons were about the lessons of Sodom and Gomorrah, just really anti-gay stuff masked by these ancient stories that could be interpreted in hundreds of ways. And I was just a kid. What could I do or say? I didn't feel like I had a home in church or with religion anymore, but I didn't have a voice. I was stuck between what I was always taught the being gay is wrong, and what I was, gay. But how could I reconcile these two things that, at the time, seemed opposing? But if I'm not a Southern Baptist, then what am I? Perhaps I am just a Christian. I am affirming, advocating, and making sure we are creating safe spaces for people to be who God made them to be. I don't believe that God made mistakes making anyone A lot of religions teach things that make us doubt that. Unfortunately for some people, it is going to take a really long time to hear that message and understand it. Labels are not important to me. My ministry is to people of all faiths or no faith. If someone is hurt, I'm going to try to help that person. I feel God is about justice. God is about compassion. God is about loving all people. I hope that all people will eventually be able to hear the message that God loves them as they are. There is still an astonishing amount of bias against LGBT folks in healthcare, which heaps social suffering on top of physical suffering. I see advocacy and reducing stigma as an important way to live out my mission. 
I still think about that fateful moment in the hospital room. As it turns out, it was a good thing that the staff chaplain was at lunch. We want to welcome the storyteller, Will Grinstead, to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us, Will. Uh, so in some ways, this story is about a moment you had an identity crisis. And I don't know how long ago this exactly was, but are you still, is there still an ongoing identity crisis or you feel good where you're at? Uh, so this happened back in, uh, let's see, 2014, uh, when I was doing my clinical training for uh, hospital chaplaincy through a program called Clinical Pastoral Education. And I, I guess... Uh, the answer to both of your questions is yes. Um, yes, uh, still an identity crisis, um, although um, I guess I've come to reframe that as that that's kind of how life is, and that's that's okay. Uh, every day presents us with opportunities to grow and to change, and um, I think that's what life is supposed to be. So the journey since then has become has been uh, being okay with that ongoing kind of unfolding of identity that um, there's, there's something new to discover about ourselves every single day. So there's a life-changing moment, life-changing experience. If you hadn't had it, do you think you would have been on a different path or do you think you would eventually had it? Oh boy, that's, that's a tough philosophical question. Um, I, how about this? I, I think that I needed to have it. There was already this uh, this stirring or this wondering in me about, okay, these are the things I heard about LGBTQ people uh, growing up. I knew that that didn't resonate with me, um, but at, at the same time, I didn't really know how to practice ministry, how to how to serve that population um, authentically. You know, it was this this kind of fumbling through. I didn't have a lot of good examples to look at. Um, so, yeah, I I needed this to happen. I do think um, that eventually I would have found my way to to this kind of ministry. And the fact that it happened uh, when it did was was really great. Um, so chaplains go through clinicals, um, kind of similar to the way nurses go through clinicals, because you can't learn everything you need to know about nursing through a book. You really have to get out there and practice it and get your hands dirty. Um, and so I had not just this experience that was transformative for me, uh, but also a great um, supervisor and peer group to help me kind of process through this and, and what was this going to look like for my ministry going forward and um, how was I going to articulate um, who I am and, and why I do what I do in an authentic way. What kind of lessons were you being preached at, like growing up in the in that tradition? And how could you? I always wondered, like, how could you like sit there sometimes? And yeah. what I yeah. maybe would perceive now as like messages of like, here's why you should kind of hate a group of people or not like or accept yeah. a group of people. Yeah, yeah I, I feel this like. Um, I don't know, like a pressure in my chest, even kind of trying to think back to that time and and talk about some of this. But um, but yeah, it was. Um, so I, I grew up in a, a very an independent fundamentalist Baptist church. Um, the message about uh, LGBTQ folks or really just gay people was really all the, the articulate articulate language that you would use was that uh, those folks are flawed, they're mentally ill, um, definitely um, going to hell. I mean, it just language that it's hard for me to even repeat now, but that was very much the, the kind of language that I grew up in. Um, and I think 
when we're kids or adolescents, you know, you, you take that at face value, you know, and this was a day before the internet, you know, where you couldn't just look this stuff up. Um, you know, you had limited sources of information. I grew up, um, not only in a conservative church environment, but the school I attended was also, uh, associated with the church and very conservative. So kind of a very insular culture. Um, but it, it's interesting to me kind of thinking back really, as soon as I started stepping out of that, I started kind of questioning all of these different boundary lines that I'd been given as absolute and ask, asking hard questions of them. Mm-hmm. A question that I have, so this episode, in many ways, we're talking about chance encounters Mm. and how chance encounters can sometimes change the entire trajectory Mm -hmm. of your life. And being a person of faith, do you feel that this chance encounter that you had, that you talk about in your story, do you feel like that was an intervention from God? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I, I I could think of it that way. I think, um, so I think a lot about, um, faith development and spiritual development in my, my work, both, both for myself and for, uh, the people I serve, the patients I visit with every day. And, you know, I think if we're listening and paying attention and, and learning, um, there's this kind of just steady, uh, increase in, in what we're learning about ourselves. And then sometimes it seems like it takes a real jump. Uh, so if that's what you mean by intervention, then yes, I yeah. think I think so. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it feels like a jump up, and sometimes it feels like a descent down, you know, into something more difficult. But yeah, I, I think there are these moments in life that really just shift us really quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Knowing what you know now, and understanding how LGBTQ people have been pained or harmed by the church, what commits you to being a pastor still? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I know in, in radio, it's kind of frowned upon to have uh, that dead airspace, but I, I just wonder if we could hold those words, um, LGBT, LGBTQ people pained by the church in silence for a minute. Uh, because pain is a really is a really rich word you know we use that word pain to mean you know i'm i'm i poked myself in the arm with a pencil and a headache and uh kidney stones and emotional and spiritual pain as well um i think the kind of pain that i hear about from lgbtq folks is pain that's inflicted upon someone and so uh it's not just pain that happens to come have come about you know through ordinary daily living. That's difficult enough for any of us as it is, but it's, um, it's spiritual abuse that's been given to these people, uh, about who they are at the most fundamental level. Um, and I, my own personal belief is that, um, clergy church folks have, have a lot of answering to do for the messages that we have supported and not opposed over the years. Um, so what keeps me committed to being a pastor? Um, the work of healing that and, uh, knowing that that work is not going to happen in a month or a year. It's, it's going to happen probably over the span of my lifetime and, and others too, to where we really get back to, um, a place where we can preach true affirmation of people's, uh, deepest identity. Mm -hmm. Because so many people in the LGBTQ community have 
been pained, like mm-hmm. we just discussed. They're afraid of the church and afraid of clergy in some ways um, huh. because of this. And I'm speaking from growing up Southern Baptist, and, yes. and so we connected yeah. a bit about this. Um, there's this fear of being your authentic self in front of people who identify as people of faith. Right. So what can LGBTQ people do? I mean, what's this, this piece of, um, how do you, how do you, how do you reach, how do you reach us? Um, how do you reassure us that, uh, you're not here to do harm or change us, that you really are here to affirm us? Yeah. Well, I think I think there's a few kind of a few important points in what you said. Um, the first thing I would say to you know my clergy colleagues is um, stop talking and start listening. Mm-hmm. Um, no, nobody is interested in in our words about that anymore. That that's been that's done. That's over with. Um, we we don't need. I I don't think we don't need clergy to pretend as though um, you know we're counseling psychologists or biologists or other fo- other kinds of disciplines. We need people that are skilled at soul care. We need people that are um, skilled at working at the deepest level of who people are. And the way you do that is by listening to people. It's, it's just a radical idea that we're going to listen to people's stories as they are. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, yeah, even the way you set up the question about the, the fear of being our authentic self in front of people of faith, it just, oh, it just hurts to hear that. But I, mm-hmm. I know that must be true. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be the first thing I'd tell uh, my clergy colleagues is to uh, stop talking and to start listening. And I would also say... Um, just because you want to have an open and affirming church and you say that you're open and affirming doesn't make it so <laughs> right. You, you need to have a, a longer, uh, kind of intentional conversation and, and work with some groups to make sure that what you're offering and what you, th- what you think you're offering is actually what you're communicating because people, you know, make these, um, quick assessments of our, our spaces and our, our presence as clergy or as, um, uh, lay folks in churches um, very quickly, mm-hmm. so it's it's important to get those things right if you really want to um, invite people into that space. What are some signs that churches or um, houses of faith can show that they're affirming rather than just making a statement that we're affirming, or just mm-hmm. the rainbow sticker? Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. or all yeah. or everyone welcome here, right? Uh-huh. Um, we, yeah. we see that a lot. Churches yes. will add everyone welcome here. Everyone's welcome here. But yes. Yeah, but but are is everyone welcome? Is every kind of person welcome to uh, be married in the church space without any questions asked? Is every kind of person welcomed to be a clergy? in this denomination is every kind of person uh, allowed to work um, with the same level of scrutiny um, in the children's ministry. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there's an appropriate level of scrutiny that goes into that, but without the, without extra steps. So if you have a, a trans person that wants to work in your, in your children's ministry, do you ask them the same questions as you would ask me, mm-hmm. you know, a background check or so on and so forth, but no additional uh, questions that, that kind of gaslight people. Um, oh, that, that statement, everyone's welcome here just, is just one of my pet peeves recently. <laughs> it's like, are, are they really, are they really welcome here? Yeah. You know, there's, there's being allowed to walk in the door technically. And then there's, uh, there's fully welcoming. Um, and I, I think we've got a long way to go still. Mm-hmm. What do you say to 
colleagues, perhaps maybe uh, folks who you went through school with, or perhaps it's uh, people you know from, and I hate to use this word past life, but um, in your past experiences of what you used to believe, I'm sure you still hear people say, but... But uh, uh-huh. the scripture says this, and we can't get beyond that. How yeah. do you even have conversations? Like, what's one way? Um, we can't change minds overnight, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, that just isn't possible. We know that's not true. But there is a chipping away process that can happen. Um, and there are times when chance encounters, mm-hmm. right, or chance conversations can alter how you move forward. How do you begin conversations when people start with, but scripture says? Yeah. Yeah, well, I could uh, kind of geek out on that question for a little while, but I think more than we have time for. But um, I, I think you have to look people in the eyes and ask, is this a, I can he- say, I, I can hear that this is a belief that's very important to you. Is this something you're willing to study? Is this something you're willing to look at? And you have to trust that people are giving you an honest answer when they say yes. And if so, I'll, I'll talk with them about that. Honestly, a lot of people are not uh, willing to look at that. You know, for a, it says something about their identity. Uh, it it would mean something culturally for them to step out of uh, to be out of step with their church or their denomination. Um, all these other things are placed at people think they're placing at risk um, by questioning this one belief for some reason that I, it's it's hard for me to look back and understand that. Um, and yet, I know that there was a time for me when this was a this was a belief that I had, at least at some level, um, about people's identity. Um, so as hard as it may be, the, the way that we take steps forward uh, is by taking a step toward with compassion. Even the people that are that are really easy to, to kind of hold at arm's length. Um, as, so as a pastor, I trust that when I do do that towards someone who has a belief that's different than mine, that there's something intrinsically good in their in their spirit that will re- that can recognize that and take a step towards me as well. In the story you shared, you walk into a room, um, a woman's partner is is about is dying, dying dies, yeah. she dies right there. She does, yeah. Um, and you kind of see yourself through her eyes as someone that might not necessarily be there for her wholly. Yeah. You know? Yeah. How today do you walk into that similar situation any differently? Yeah, uh, I think with a, a better radar about um, about you know who who's in the room, how are they, who's close to the bed, uh, how are folks impacted by what's about to happen here? Um, yeah, just what I mean, the fact that someone's about to die in front of us is is gut wrenching enough as it is, you know. Um, to be there at a time when we're withdrawing uh, this vent that's that's keeping this person alive and then and expecting them to die that's that's enough that's hard enough as it is, but then to add on top of that, um, you know, this this woman her her partner was was dying, but her greatest fear uh, was that uh, maybe I might say something condemning at a time like this. I I can only look back and infer a lot of things, but I, I infer that. Um, the, this, the patient um, was a person of faith and her partner may, maybe lesser so, uh, but, but did this for her partner because it would be important to her, um, but took a gigantic risk, you know, to do that. 
um, I mean, with what courage that woman had to, to say, well, I don't know what kind of chaplains they have here, and they probably don't approve of me or our relationship, but this is important to my partner, and so I'm going to ask this, this chaplain to come and pray for us at a time like this. I mean, that, that's incredible courage. I, frankly, I, I don't know that I would do that mm-hmm. um, for my own family. Um, just, just incredible courage that she had. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're just walking into that room on a daily basis to some extent, walking into a right. situation you don't know who the parties are necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. Do you even ask the question anymore of like, what's your relationship to the patient? Um, sometimes when it's important, um, you know, um, my work in palliative care now, uh, is, has shifted a little bit. So I do fewer of those, um, kind of the first time I'm meeting someone is at a, a critical moment like this. Often I'm, I'm working with families, uh, days or weeks or even months sometime as we're approaching this kind of thing, uh, which is a kind of work that I really enjoy more because you can build those relationships with people. Uh, but there are still times that I go in, um, you know, this is the first time I'm meeting people. And often I'll just ask, you know, this, this is a really uh, difficult time for you guys. I'm here to help you. Um, what could I do to serve you at a time like this? And just leave it very open like that. I mean, people, people are as different. Um, you know, they're, they're all kinds of different people. And so I'll just let them name how uh, they think I fit into the story at this time. Do you ever encounter in those experiences, similar to the experience you share in the story, where you feel like people are holding back a little on how much they want to share and how do you how do you get them to share more in that situation or do you just let it yeah. go where it may go yeah well uh, i think every everyone is a little bit different and unique um I, I i try to remember that um you know bringing openness uh creates the space for some of that openness and people have to own some of that themselves but uh, when I go in and present a kind of a very open attitude of ministry, it, it can it leaves space for other people to fill that out how they want, kind of like a paint by numbers or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, people fill that space in, in all kinds of different ways, and, and that's, that's all right with me. Will Grinstead, uh, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Thank you for having me. This was really wonderful. You said to love the lost, so I'm loving you now. You said speak the truth, I'm calling you out. Why don't you live the words that you put in my mouth? Be love of a call, and justice rolls out. Will shared with us off air that we must be willing to forgive our past selves. And if we don't, if we don't forgive ourselves for our past transgressions, it's another form of self-harm. Will's story is important to me. As someone who's still recovering from religious trauma, there was a time when I didn't want anyone of faith to talk to me about their religion or to share their views of sexuality with me. It felt like an assault. But what people like Will have taught me is that not everyone is the same. And we all need to add in a little room for forgiveness. Will's chance encounter with a dying woman altered his views and has helped him forgive his past self for what he once believed and how he needed to move forward as an inclusive person of faith. And perhaps Will's story can help me and people like me be open to affirming people of faith and to forgive myself for the disdain I once held for them 
in my own heart. And in case you were wondering, I'm okay. College saved me. I met my first boyfriend there, and he showed me that I am who I am, and it's okay to love who I love. And my parents, despite their deeply held religious beliefs, came around and loved me as me, their gay son. To listen to past episodes of this program, visit indianapublicradio.org slash thefacingproject. From there, you can subscribe to the podcast where you'll get episodes of The Facing Project delivered to your device each month. Listeners can contribute stories or volunteer to share the stories of others with The Facing Project that may appear on the show. More information at facingproject.com slash inspireaction. And to continue the conversation about this episode, find us on Facebook at The Facing Project. The Facing Project is recorded at Indiana Public Radio at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, and is produced by Sean Ashcraft. The show is distributed nationally through PRX. We are your host, Kelsey Timmerman and J.R. Jameson. And until next time, we wish you the courage to share your own story and the empathy to listen to others. Mm-hmm.